Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We are continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is something that we took a break from last week on Mother's Day, but we are back into the thick of it um, this week. And uh, yeah, it's some good stuff that we're going to be looking at. So if you've got your Bibles there, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be reading from uh, chapter 7, 1 to 6. If you don't have your Bibles there, it would be on the screen behind me as well. And we'll pick it up from chapter 7, verse 1. It says this. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Thanks. Morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well this morning. <coughs> Uh, as Ben flagged, we are on a journey through 1 Corinthians. Uh, we are up to, oh yeah, so some tricky things in this chapter we, and chapter 6, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, that can really blow up. They're explosive verses. You might have even felt a little uncomfortable reading that, just going, what is going on here? But what we're going to do is work really hard on what is God's plan for sex and marriage and how does that work? What, what, what is behind all these verses? So for that, we need to ask God to um, meet us where we're at, uh, we've all got baggage we all come from different backgrounds in relation to that and that he does speak to us so please join me in prayer dear father god just thank you for allowing us to gather here for giving us a church family where we can support each other understand each other and have discussions about real life matters i thank you for your word that in scripture you address us in real life matters and we do pray that you would calm us relieve any anxiety we might have about the subject matter but lord speak to us speak to us we pray in jesus name amen what do you think of when you think of marriage and sex the subject what do you think what shapes your ideas of marriage and what shapes your ideas of how sex fits into that because each culture it's easy for us to think well everybody's thought the same thing throughout history Everybody just goes, you get married, there's sex in that, and it's just the way it is. Well, has it? Let me give you a few examples. This is taken 330 BC by a Roman guy, Demosthenes. Demosthenes. I'm glad I wasn't living in that time. But uh, he writes this. So we've got his thing. He explains how his uh, household works. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of our per persons. So he's second wife basically other wives uh, but wives bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household 
Now, I'm not sure whether you picked up that, but I think he's actually trying to be complimentary to his wife. You know, mistresses are out there, our concubines are here, but our wives, our wives give us children and they're guardians of our household. I think he's trying to be complimentary. I'm not sure how you feel about that one. Uh, what about the Catholic teaching in 1100s? This is the medieval ages. Uh, they were teaching, and Catholic Church was the only church, it was the main religion all throughout Europe, Avoid sex during three Lent seasons associated with Easter, Pentecost and Christmas on all Sundays of the year, on feast days prior to receiving communion, while doing penance and on their wedding night. I'm not sure how you feel about that one. But if you work that out, 40% of the year, put a line through your calendar. It's not going to happen. That's what they're suggesting. That's the way they operate. But then we have the Puritans. Uh, they're more around the 1600s, trying to, yeah, live for God, live right. Sex is only for procreation. That is having kids. If you don't want to have kids, no sex. If you want to have kids, have sex. Avoid all other times. You might notice the Puritans had 12 to 20 children. Like, it was a, they were just, okay, we, we still want to try for more kids. I think it was the excuse. But they're... But they actually taught, you know, it's, it's wise for you to, to lie in bed with your spouse and have a sheet between the two of you so there's no actual physical contact. They were serious about this living a way that honours God, but also in a way that has all these rules around this understanding. The thing that I find interesting, though, these ideas didn't just happen overnight. It's not like the Pope all of a sudden come out and said, okay, put a line through all these dates on your calendar. It didn't start like that. It was just one idea, building on another. You learn from your parents, your grandparents. Oh, this is the way you do things. Even the Puritans, that didn't happen overnight. It was teaching over years and years, generation after generation, that they got to this point. The question is for us, is for our ideas about marriage and sex, how have they come about? Have you picked that up from your parents or grandparents? Have you picked that up from your culture around you? So we're in a very uh, sexually explicit culture at the moment. There's lots of freedom to talk about that sort of stuff. What has shaped your ideas on sex and marriage? So what we want to do this morning is to, to acknowledge that we have ideas. But what we want to do is to dig into this passage, which I think is a real bomb. Bomb in that it's going to blow up something. I hope... It's going to blow up all our other ideas, all our preconceived ideas, stuff we've got from our parents, grandparents, our culture, uh, reading history. Blow up those things so we can get back to reveal God's plan. What is God's plan for marriage? What is God's plan for sex within that? That's what we want to get back to. And I hope that that reveals a very beautiful picture that is very appealing for us. So we go, yes, that's what I want. I want to live God's way, God's plan. I will also note that this passage is also a bomb that could blow up in a very hard way for some people here. Because if we've, uh, in our life journey, it's going to be really hard to talk about the subject matter of just sex and marriage, whether through we've been through stuff in our own lives uh, that's been abusive and really hard. And it's very emotionally hard to just sit through this stuff. It could also be a bomb for people who... Oh, I'd long to be married. I'd long to be having intimacy like that with someone. I can't wait, but I'm not there yet. God hasn't given me that time yet. This could be a very hard thing to sit through. 
But I think what's really beautiful about working through the Bible and us doing it as a church family is that we do life together. There's all ages and all stages of life. We're all growing in our walk with God, understanding God, and we do it all together. So when we talk about marriage, we have those discussions together because we're understanding God, we're understanding each other. Uh, in the future, the, this chapter goes on to talk about divorce, goes to talk about singleness. We're going to talk about those things together, wrestle with it together. It would be a sad day if we said, oh, we're going to talk about marriage today, so if you're not married, you better leave the room. This is not for you. That would be sad, wouldn't it? Because we're all designed as a church family to wrestle with these things together where we understand each other, have a laugh with each other, but also have some empathy and understanding and encouragement for each other too. So I want to just acknowledge something's going to blow up today, I'm pretty sure. I hope it's a good thing. I hope it's a good thing that's going to help uh, your marriage or your idea of marriage that um, you may enjoy at some point. So there's, I, I gave the heads up uh, a couple of weeks ago, as Ben said, we hit chapter six, that some of the content of this sort of stuff is really awkward. That some of you might feel like in moments, I feel like your dad giving you the sex talk and that's really awkward and just, just think of those who are older than me that their son is giving them the sex talk and that's really awkward. I tried to adjust that today by killing off the spotlight so you don't see me as much this morning. No eye contact, I'm okay with that. But it's actually, I uh, got some feedback last week that I might have overpromised and underdelivered on the whole sex thing. So there wasn't a lot of sex in last week and I promised, okay, I've taken that on board. We usually have three points in a sermon. Today, I have five. I'm going to help you with that. Five points that we're going to work through as best we can because you can't just have a quick look and think you've got it. We actually need to dig a bit deeper. We don't want to just read the passage and go, yep, got it. We actually need to see the implications of the passage. So that's why this week we're just going, there's five points. First one, marriage is about, they're all about marriage. Marriage is about, the first point, one man and one woman and sex is for that marriage. Now Paul opens the, this chapter in, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is not the verse you put on your fridge to go, hey, I'm just giving your spouse the message. He's actually acknowledging this is what you, the question you asked me. So we have a church in Corinth. They're having some issues. They've obviously written to Paul and say, Paul, can you answer these questions? And this is their question or statement. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the issue. What's behind that, that we'll see from now on pretty much to the rest, to the end of 1 Corinthians, is we have this culture within the Corinthians. We have on the one side, which we saw in chapter 6, they're super sexualized. The I, Corinth is just, there's no morals in Corinth. They have temples with prostitution that is pretty much compulsory to be involved with if you're a Corinthian. Uh, that, we already saw earlier there's a guy in the church uh, sleeping with his stepmom, and the church seems okay with that. Sexuality is a problem on one side, no control. But on the other side, you have these Christians, and remember, these are whole new Christians. This is a first-generation church. Nobody had ever heard of Jesus before this time, before Paul had come along. So now they're trying to work out how, how do we be a Christian? How do we follow Jesus? How do we become spiritual? But then there's an area of the church that says, how do I become super spiritual? 
They want to be the elite spiritual. So they're fighting over who's got the best spiritual gifts, who can speak in tongues, who can do all the glamour things, is what they're chasing. So he's talking to this crowd. They seem to think to become spiritual or super spiritual means sex is, is sort of dirty, it's harmful, let's not have sex because I want to become super spiritual. This is the issue. Does this, if, is this a light bulb moment in reading this text? This changes all the text. So it's an issue that Paul is addressing, not a statement that he's enforcing. But he goes on then to say, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husbands. And there's a couple of things just to notice here. This idea of uh, sexual immorality, the word used there in the Greek, because it's written in Greek, is uh, pornea. You might think of porn, but it's actually broader than that. He's actually contrasting, there's sex within marriage between a man and his wife, or a wife and her husband. Everything else is immorality. Everything else is pornea. So there's like, don't, we want to avoid the point. That's not a part of God's plan. We covered that uh, last time in chapter 6. That's, that's not God's plan. God's plan is sexual relations with a man and a woman within their marriage. So we need to just uh, flesh out. We don't get a lot of, gee, I wish God, the Bible was like a textbook. Where do I look up marriage? Where do I look up what is appropriate or inappropriate in sex stuff? We don't find a solid chapter like that, but what we find is a consistent message from start to end in the Bible. So from start to end, it's consistent. The sexual immorality, that pornia, is not a part of God's plan. In fact, God made sex for within the marriage. Hang on a minute. What about, we always go, what about the exceptions? What about... um, now, if I'm in this situation, I've been single for a long time. What about if I'm going to marry them, but I'm not yet married? What about all these other exceptions to the rule? So, no, no, no. There's sex in marriage. Everything else is sexual immorality. It's pornia, he goes. There's just black and white. It's two sides. The other thing to notice here, just while we're in the verse, is that the marriage that he's talking about is between a man and a woman and a woman and a man. That's also consistent from start to end. Uh, and we might have other ideas in Australian law. Uh, men can marry, women can marry uh, each other. But in the Bible, for God's plans, man and woman. And that's consistent. So Paul, what we see here is consistent with the rest of Scripture. So marriage is about one man and one woman. And sex is for that, for within that marriage. And we should, know, we should notice already, God is not anti-sex. It was actually the verse before, the last verse of chapter 6. Paul says, honour God with your bodies. So he says, there's a way of dishonouring God, but there's a way of honouring God. It's not don't have sex at all, but have sex in your marriage. In fact, Paul's going to encourage more sex, in any, if anything, in this chapter, not less sex. So it's kind of just know that God, is, God has a plan. It's a beautiful plan. And this is what we're going to flesh out a bit more. Point two. Marriage is about pleasing the other. This is where we get to the next verse, verse 3. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body but yields it to his wife. This is a bomb. This is, I feel it blowing up already. Uh, 
Because when you read that, these verses have the power to destroy, don't they? Because when you read it, you go, hang on a minute, does that mean that I belong to them? They, in a sense, own me. They have authority over me. I feel vulnerable. I feel unsafe. And I don't trust them. This is a thing that's going to blow up because I'm being so vulnerable I could be open to abuse, taken advantage of. I feel uncomfortable in that space. That's legitimate for people who've had that experience and we've heard bad stories and uh, this is a terrible verse when it's not understood right. It's actually a verse that can be thrown at you to go, hey, you, you're obliged, fulfill your marital duty. That's a bomb that can blow up badly because it's misunderstood. But it's a bomb that can blow up beautifully if we understand it right in a way that God designed and I mean blow up in that take away all our, concept, all our preconceived ideas about what marriage is and uh, protecting me and my rights and keeping the walls up. This is saying what a beautiful picture it is to get to a point where you can drop those walls, where you can feel safe, where you can feel vulnerable knowing that it's going to be okay. This is a beautiful picture and it paints a picture of how precious you are and how precious the other person is, that they are being trusted with in, into your hands. It's like a precious gift. If you mistreat something that's precious, you will destroy it. But if you treat it as precious, that you'll take ownership of it, you'll care for it, that's beautiful. That's the image that Paul's trying to say. This picture is a beautiful picture. But we also need to see a little bit more of how that works out. What does, what does it mean? How do we know that it's not going to blow up in a bad way and we're taken advantage of? How do we know that we can drop our guard and feel safe? What is this marital duty that he's talking about? He actually fills this out. So here, uh, the context would be ultimate intimacy in sex in marriage. But it's actually... It goes bigger than that. What is marriage all about? He fills that out a little bit later in the chapter, in 7.33, where he's talking about, the context is, uh, he's talking to singles and marrieds, our singles uh, have more time and freedom to devote themselves to the Lord, but marrieds, he says, a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. What is that? How he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. A married woman, in the same way, is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. The interesting thing here is Paul's not pointing the finger at marrieds, going, you've sold out, you've given up, you've got less time for God because you're married. He's not saying that at all. He's actually affirming, if you are married, this is the affairs you should be concerned about. You should be concerned about, men, how to please your wife. For wives how to please your husband. That is our priority. Wouldn't it be interesting if we ask that question on the wedding day, we're taking our wedding vows, what is the goal of you as a husband? I'm here because I want to pursue the interests of my wife. I want to please my wife. That's why I'm getting married and vice versa. I want to please, I'm going to live for him. I want to please him. My interests are in him. It's other person-centred. That changes how we read back in verse 3, doesn't it? Fulfill your marital duty. I want to live for please them. Likewise, wife to husband. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband because he wants to please me. And she doesn't have authority, uh, the husband does, doesn't have authority over his body but leads it to his wife because she wants to please me. It's diffusing that whole, you're not there to take advantage of the situation, you're there to please her. This is the marriage. This is what Paul sees as, as what's going on in a marriage. Now, we need to sit up. This is very countercultural because the culture we live in is a very me-centred culture. I want to get married because I think he's going to treat me like a queen. And that's what I want. I want him to spill me. I want to be the princess. Or us fellas, I want her, I'm expecting her going into marriage to treat me like a king, that I'm the number one man and anything less is falling short. We think about it from our own perspective that this is what I'm going to get out of it. This is what my, I'm entitled to in a marriage. But actually the Bible never does that. It actually goes the other way. It asks the question, what are you bringing into the marriage? What are you not entitled to, but what are you responsible for? You're responsible for pleasing her. And she's responsible for pleasing him. Putting them first. What are you doing in that space? That's the question that it's constantly asking. God has put you in her life, men, to please her. And the verses 33 and 34 are not talking about sex. It's all of marriage, but put it into sex. It's the same thing. That's what you should be concerned about, pleasing the other person. It's very countercultural because we, we want what we want. But to flip that on its head... And there's a difference. So if you play the, the, cha- the verse 3 and verse 4 card as a, hang on, you know, I'm, you're there to fulfil your marital duty. You belong to me. Your body belongs to me. It's not great foreplay, right? It's not going to get you anywhere. In fact, you've misunderstood the verse. In fact, what is foreplay is verse 33 and 34, that you're there to please her. There was a saying years ago, I think it's still around, sex begins in the kitchen. That's verse 33 and 34. You need that. I'm here to put you first, to please you. And she's there to put you first, to please. When that's happening, this whole bringing down the walls, being safe, feeling vulnerable, willingly giving yourself to them, that's when it happens. That's when it happens. There'll be a few tips from the old guy up the front too. So uh, relationships, uh, my thing, speaking from experience, how to blow it. <laughs> Learning from failures? Yeah. Sex begins in the kitchen. The um, point three. So marriage is about trusting each other. Trust is an implication of this. Paul can't just say, you women, give yourself to your men. You men, give yourself to the women. What is that in a marriage? It's a bunch of rules that none of us like rules, right? But the implications of this, filled out in the rest of Scripture, there's got to be trust. There's got to be trust. And this is where uh, it's helpful to say. I heard a story about... um, yeah, a pastor uh, was counselling this couple to get married and all of a sudden it became a big issue because the, the fiancé, the future husband, wanted to share a bank account and she's like, no way, actually I'm offended that he would do that. This is actually a deal breaker. If he wants to do that, it's off. 
This is such a big deal to her. And the pastor looked at them and he said, what would you do? What advice would you give to them about combined bank accounts? Well, she says, what's the problem? Well, he just wants me for my money. He just wants to get his hands, not just wants him for the money, but he wants to get his hands on my money. And he said to her, if that is how you feel, don't marry him if you don't trust him with your money. But then he says to him, don't marry her if she won't trust you with her money. This is trust thing, goes both ways. But if that's what they're fighting about when it comes to money, what are they going to be fighting about? How are they going to be dealing about when it comes to something much more precious than just money, as in your body, your sexuality, to give yourself to trust them with that? That's way more bigger, way more significant. This is why we need to understand these verses seriously. This is where we need to go a little bit wider. And Ephesians 5 is a great chapter, a great chapter, but it's great verses about understanding Jesus and us, but also husbands and wives. I'll just read uh, chapter 5, verse 25. Pick up, I want you to see, what do we learn about Jesus in the, these verses? What do we learn about particularly men or whatever? If, if you're a man, what is it saying to you for women? What is it saying to you? So husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. Now, this is a great picture of Jesus. So I trust Jesus. I follow Jesus. It's not something I've just signed up for, but I can sign up because look at what he's done for me. He's got my best interests at heart. He pursues what's best for me, even to the point of giving up his life for me. How should I respond to that? I know I can trust him willingly. I know I can be vulnerable with him. Because if he's willing to give up his life, I can trust him with my life, my time, my money, my values. I can trust him with everything because he's got the best interest for me. He wants to see me presented as holy, pure and blameless. I can trust in Jesus. What does that say? In the same way for the husbands. What does it mean for you to be someone who others can trust? Who others see you as, as faithful and wanting the best for them? For others to see you as, I can be vulnerable with you because I know you're not going to take advantage of me, but I know you've got the best interests at heart. What's it going to take for them to be, feel safe enough and trust you enough to drop their guards and be vulnerable? It's to be like Jesus. It's to be like Jesus to prove yourself as trustworthy. That's the model. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's, it's a high bar for husbands to do that. But for someone to give, give you authority over their body, they've got to trust you like that, to completely drop their guard and to completely give their life into your hands. So for the husband... What would it look like to be the Ephesians 5 man? Because she needs to know it, not just 
hear the talk, but to see it, to build that trust. There's a few exercises in this talk, so I want you to think about that. What does it look like for you to be that person and that she can see it and experience it? But also for wives, what would it take for you to completely trust him? It's a very open question because we've all got different issues and baggage and things we wrestle with. But what, what, what will it take for, for you to completely trust him? Because he needs to know. Sometimes it's really hard guessing that sort of stuff. There needs to be a conversation about this. What does it look like? What are you expecting from me? Because we want that picture of complete trust, complete vulnerability, complete enjoyment. How do we get there? Now, we need to be aware of lots of things that push into this space. Because, again, this is another bomb moment when we pull up that verse and go, trust is the foundation for this. What happens when there's no trust? See, if we base our marriages on uh, past, if we look back what happened in the 1950s, say, that was the pre-sexual revolution time, there was a reputation that sex was all about the husband and she was fulfilling her needs, uh, she was to submit to him, and often that led to abuse in that sort of marriage. Certainly not always, but there's a lot of stories. But even later, there's other different Christian movements where they would pull up this verse and just focus on the wife. Say, this is what you need to be to please your husband. This is your duty. And again, lots of abuse come out of that uh, because of the um, wrong understanding. Now, we need to know getting these verses wrong is not right in God's sight. It's not acceptable to God when there is that kind of abuse in marriages, even in Christian circles that want to pull out verses like this. It's not acceptable to God. And it's not acceptable here in this church either. And we want to help deal with that. There is no way of twisting Scripture to justify your sexual desires to promote yourself. It's always for the other person. In fact, to twist Scripture to justify any kind of sexual bullying leads to physical abuse, emotional abuse, and even spiritual abuse when we go down that path. This, these verses don't allow it for that. It's always other person-centred. Now, I hope there's more awareness <clears throat> of this today and, and we're, we're dealing with that stuff and we're better at our marriage, I hope. But we do want to address it if it's going on. But we need to be aware of another cultural issue that's creeping into our society and possibly even churches. <clears throat> I want to introduce you to um, a researcher and author, Louise Perry. <clears throat> uh, she's written a book, The Case Against Sexual Revolution. Uh, she's not a Christian, <clears throat> but she's done a lot of research in this area to try and help understand what's going on. I've got to confess, I haven't read her book, I've heard lots about her book, but I've listened to her podcasts and they are revealing. In fact, it's damning on the culture of today, but she's serious about her research. And what she's trying to draw to our attention is that particularly younger people in our society today are even more confused than ever about sexual intimacy. And it's a lot to do with trust. This is her big thing, trust. She said, this is, um, I want to say it's a quote, but it's from my notes from her because it's from a podcast. She says, and I'll read it for you because I think she says it really sharply and succinctly. The biggest factor 
<clears throat> in this whole issue, this current issue, is men learning about what is acceptable behaviour from porn. In that, there's no foreplay, it's you and your fantasy, uh, there's no relationship, the woman is an object to fulfil your fantasy, uh, there's movement towards violence, even choking during sex, but she'll orgasm and love it. So it's all acceptable. She goes on to say, uh, when that man actually meets a girl, three things often happen. The girl says no because she doesn't feel safe and he leaves confused. What's that about? Or secondly, he thinks this is how it works. So even if, he even if she says no, he's convinced that she'll still like it and it'll end up to some form of rape. Or thirdly, she has become convinced that this is what men want, so she goes along with it and be's abused in the process. And Louise Perry's whole argument is young men are confused. They need to know what women want and they want someone they can trust and feel safe with. This woman's not a Christian. She's not blowing the trumpet, you need all this stuff. No, no, no. She's saying there's some serious problems here. Her agenda is better relationships, better marriages, not sidetracked by anything else. That's why I think it's good to listen to her, to go, what she's finding is actually what the Bible is saying. Trust is important. If you're on that ultimate movement towards giving yourself, dropping your walls, being vulnerable, enjoying each other, trust must be there. So to state the obvious, for the guys particularly, but all of us, Porn is not there to ed educate you. Porn is not there to prepare you for marriage. That's not going to do that. And don't think that moving into a marriage is going to fix all my porn problems. It's what you bring into your marriage. You've got to deal with it. It'll still be there. Don't think that marriage is going to stop that. But it's also coming back to this, this verse, of this beautiful picture of the Ephesians 5, of I want a man who I can fully trust, completely trust, so I can feel safe and vulnerable and enjoy what God has given us. It's to be that Ephesians 5 man for that to happen. What does that look like for you? Because it is a beautiful picture that only comes from trust and feeling safe, dropping guard and vulnerability. So just to really make it clear, here's advice from the old guy up the front again. If you're single and hope to be married, Looks might get your attention. And, you know, I, I feel sorry for Kim in this area. Well, Kim and I have been married 32 years. When she married me, I was 80 kilos. I was, dare I say, a bit of a stud. <laughs> but times have gone. Looks are fleeting. If you're chasing that in a partner, you will be disappointed. Again, I apologise to Kim. <laughs> but if you look for someone who you can trust... Look for someone who you feel vulnerable with. That's a person that's going to bring out the best in your marriage when you can give yourself to them. Trust. It works both ways for guys too. Guys, look for someone you can trust. Look for someone you can feel safe with. Marriage is about enjoying each other. Go on to a couple more verses. Verse 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, Paul says. 
See, one reason you might hold off having sex, he says, is to spend time praying, uh, what they might call as uh, doing a, a sex fast, that you hold off sex, but there's conditions, you both agree, and it's for a fixed time, a short time, to do it. Now, I want to ask, who actually does this? I don't want to see hands or anything, but if it wasn't there, anyway. Paul says that is the exception to the rule. But to also observe, less sex doesn't make you more spiritual. In fact, if it did make you more spiritual, Satan would have less room to tempt you. Paul's actually saying the opposite. Less sex leaves you more open to temptation. So you might choose to put your, to, to not have sex for a period of time, but by choosing it, you know you're making yourself more vulnerable to Satan's temptations. But this is not just for spending time in prayer. We also, the same principle is for when we're travelling, when we're spending time apart, times around pregnancies or after childbirth or physical injuries that just allow us not to be able to, to be involved in sex. But we need to know, so there's lots of reasons not to do it, but stopping sex by mutual agreement, it's almost encouraging you not to go down this path as far as possible. Stopping sex by mutual agreement for a, for a short period of time, even the way you use the words, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, don't just cut, cut the other person out, by talk about it, for a fixed time, so that you might, for in this case, prayer, but then come together, uh, this is a concession. It's an exception to the rule that this happens. Now, to state the obvious, it's not the norm not to have sex in your marriage. And then sex becomes the exception. I know sometimes it might feel that way, that sex becomes the exception. But no sex for a fixed time should be uh, with agreement. It is the exception not having sex. Why is this a point worth making? Why, why hammer this point? Because we live in a crazy culture. Because on the one hand, researchers have called our time. We are in a hypersexualized world, is the term they're using. Because we think we're in a society that's more sexually advanced than previous generations. Uh, we, uh, you know, particularly when we look at the medieval times and Puritan times, being able to think of our grandparents 50 years ago, we've had a sexual revolution, sexual awareness. There's more talk about sex in Australia than the history of Australia right now. So we think we're more advanced in this area. But statistically, researchers have coined this, this season we're living in as a sex recession. Because each generation is having less sex than the generation before. Think about it. My grandparents were having more sex than me. Maybe don't think about it. It's <laughs> but the reality is, we're not getting better at this. We're actually having less. That's what researchers are saying. I want to introduce you to a lady called Dr. Patricia Wirakun. She's a Christian sexologist. Uh, she's a professor, she lectures in this stuff, she's highly respected in her field, she just retired. She's written a whole lot of books about sexuality, uh, particularly talking to your children about it. Highly recommend getting your hands on her stuff. We actually had her come to Southside some years ago, back when we were in the old house. 
uh, and she did some stuff for us. And she had some stuff that was very encouraging and enlightening that I want to share with you. These are taken from my notes, and I took plenty of notes that day in a room full of Southside couples listening to her. This is what she said. Sometimes sexy marriage is, is like a fancy dinner. Fancy dinners are awesome. Sometimes it's a bit like meat and potatoes. You just eat it because it's dinner time. But life would be pretty boring if you had meat and potatoes at every meal. You need to work on it. You need to work on your intimacy. Make time, make it interesting, mix it up. And yes, in a room full of other Southside couples, she handed around sex toys and yes, I blushed. She's saying, mix it up, make it interesting. But what she's saying, is there something from stopping that kind of enjoyment in intimacy? Because if there's some sort of physical discomfort, something doesn't feel right, it's, it's not a joy, it's actually painful. That's a real thing. But you need to see a doctor about that. Don't just put up with it, just going, it's just me. No, no, actually see a doctor. There's also lots of psychological re reasons that we, we don't want to let go and we don't want to give ourselves. She says, see a counsellor, see a psychologist. It's, it's stuff that should be worked on. Because she said, she said, sex is not the main thing for marriage, but your marriage will suffer without it. Enjoy it, she says. And if you've ever heard her talk, she's Sri Lankan. She's old enough to be at least my grandma. She says, enjoy it, she says. It's there to be enjoyed. If there's something holding you back, work on that. Don't think it's just you. See a doctor. See a counsellor. Because it's for enjoyment. This is what Paul's saying. Make sure you stay with each other and not deprive each other. Okay, last point. Marriage is about satisfying each other. Again, we're going to see this in this same passage because what Paul's saying, don't... Um, don't have long periods without sex because of your lack of sexual control. You'll be tempted by Satan. But he's implying that if you are satisfied, if you find satisfaction with your partner, Satan will have less room to tempt you. You've got to find that satisfaction in that intimacy, in that moment. Now, this is consistent, again, with the rest of Scripture. You could go to Song of Songs, an Old Testament book, poetry, very image-based, very graphic. You could also go, I want to pull you up a verse from Proverbs, chapter 5, verse 15. Where this is Solomon writing to his sons, words of wisdom in Proverbs. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. What is this about? If you've never heard this, yeah, it's about water. But protecting your well, let it be over. It sounds great, this water that you've got, these springs overflowing. Don't let them go into the streets. Don't share it with anyone, particularly strangers, but keep it to yourself. What is it? Is it talking about water? He goes on. May your fountain be blessed and may, your, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated by another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? What is he saying? Did you realise this was in the Bible? <laughs> it's pretty graphic. 
enjoy her breast, be intoxicated by her love. This is pretty graphic, but he's saying in marriage, God has given her for you to be satisfied, to satisfy, to bring joy, to bring intoxication. And for the wife as well, I think if he wrote it to his, uh, well, Song of Songs is for women as well. It's the same sort of thing for her to find this intoxication, this joy in him. Now, this is consistent throughout Scripture, that in marriage, it's for enjoyment. And intimacy, sexual intimacy, is there to help us in that. Now, sometimes you might feel like, well, I'm a Christian, I want to follow God, but sometimes my sexuality, oh, that's, that's God really interested, I want to keep him out. So when yeah, we go into the bedroom, we lock the door to help keep the kids out, but I'm hoping I'm locking God out too, because I'm not sure whether I want him involved in that part of my life. I mean, how do you think God feels that verses like this are in his Bible? This is the word of God. How do you think, do you think God's embarrassed by this? Let me show you the next verse. For you are always in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. What I think is going on here is like, actually, God is interested. God did give you a spouse, a husband and wife. God did give you the ability to give yourselves, to enjoy each other with that intimacy of sex and enjoying each other's bodies in that way. I think verse 21 is saying, how are you going with that? That it's God saying, how are you going with that? Are you satisfying each other? So you shouldn't need to go looking elsewhere, is what these verses are also saying. If we're giving ourselves to the other, that's fantastic. Work on it. But if we're not, there's stuff we do need to work on. We do need to work on it. There's part of this bomb that's blowing off all the other stuff to say, we want, we want what these verses are talking about in our marriage. We need to get rid of the other stuff, talk about it and work through it. So what God has given to us in marriage is something way bigger than I think we often realise, we often take for granted. When he gives us a husband, when he gives us a wife, it's not just the ring on the finger, a ceremony and, hey, I'm married. No, no. It's trust, it's vulnerability, it's enjoyment, it's satisfaction. It's all that rolled together. But what blemishes us can be our past hurts, that we've been taken advantage of, that we've been let down, we've been disappointed. And that could be just with our spouse or could be before we got into that relationship. Many people have experienced that and it's holding them back. We can also stop looking at our husbands and wives because we're busy, we're stressed, we've got so much to do, we're tired. Our priority is to exist. And intimacy is just, that's a luxury. It's off the radar. Well, Paul is saying, no, no, that's not healthy either. God wants something better for you. Others, we think that others are having more fun than us, that we're missing out, that grass is always greener on the other side. But this is just, you know, the ball and chain comment. It's like, this is what marriage must be. No, no, it's not. God wants more for you. So if your marriage has become defined by a bit of jewellery on your finger, it has been redefined as my spouse is just a housemate or a life partner and you've stopped belonging to each other, that's a problem. That's a problem that 
even God's picture, this beautiful picture of marriage, like, no, no, he intended something better for you. So I hope this morning is a bit of a nudge to pursue a better marriage. Not a different marriage. It's not saying the grass is green, I wish I was married to that. No, no, no. To be satisfied in your own marriage, but work on it to make it a better marriage. It needs good communication. It's not about what you want, but actually, what do they want? Ask them. What do you want in this marriage? How can I be someone you can trust? Put your actions into place. Show that you're a person who, can, who you can trust. But also, it needs a willingness to give yourself. Because often we want the other person to fight and fight hard, but without talking about it, without working through you're not giving yourself. Be prepared to drop the walls at some point, that that's what we're aiming to be, to find that intimacy, that we belong to each other. So let this be a nudge that we're all a work in progress and that we work harder at that and not just let it go. I find encouragement by looking to Jesus and his attitude. Jesus wasn't married, how do we know what he did? But in all his relationships, he proved himself trustworthy. Often look at the disciples, when they were walking with him every day closely, they frustrated him, they didn't understand him, they always tried to pull him in different directions. They let him down. Jesus always proved trustworthy, always proved faithful. He always showed them that he had their best interests at heart to the point of giving up his life for them. That's what we should be like in all our relationships, that we're like Jesus in that way. We've all experienced that. If you trust in Jesus, you've experienced that personally from Jesus. So we know what it's like to drop our guards and feel vulnerable. So let's bring that into our marriages. Let me encourage you by praying for you now. Dear Father God, we just thank you for this beautiful picture. Lord, we thank you for uh, your design of marriage was way better than anybody else's. Thank you that we've got verses in Scripture that reveal this to us and you don't leave us just struggling in the dark, just putting up with our current situations. But Lord, I pray for many good conversations. I pray for many good actions that come out of this. I pray for many more uh, fulfilled marriages, not because of sex, it's not just about sex, but it's about living a life that honours you, bringing our bodies to honour you, and then we enjoy it the way you designed it. Lord, this is a bomb for us. That might mean hard conversations. It might mean talking to doctors, talking to counsellors, but Lord, help us to do something so we don't just put up with second best. Lord, help us as a church to continue these good conversations, that nothing's uh, off bar, held out, but, but we encourage each other. We're married, single, divorced, widowed. Lord, help us all to work through these things together as a church family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.